civility and respect in the age of Trump. What is good government? What are the limits of civility in good government? In the years since summer 2015, when Trump bounded upon the front row seat of the GOP nominating contests, there have been numerous pundits and academics and others who have lamented what they see as the serious partisan fractiousness that has seeped from the election contest into the general citizenry. Now all of this, many claim, can be blamed on the emergence of Trump and his brand of insult-packing politicking. Incivility, they argue, has reached an all-time high under Trump's reign as the candidate to Ripla. So, predictably, when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was refused service at the Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia, renewed calls for civility abounded again, from right-wing pundits and outraged Trump supporters to nervous Democrats like Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm not here to discuss the particularities of whether Sanders should have been allowed in good company or not, nor am I here to discuss any particular case of civility or incivility. What I want to ask is that we consider the question of what does being civil mean? In its simplest incarnation, Civil means to be courteous, polite, to possess good manners. In the political sense, this means that one is willing to engage in genteel discussion, even though doing so may sometimes go against one's ideological grain. The problem of incivility, some argue, is a plague unprecedented in American history. And I contend it is this kind of, frankly, uncritical conviction that drives the modern calls for civility at all costs. Here's the truth. Although there are numerous studies documenting the presence of negativity in campaigns, it is far from clear if the lack of civility is the root cause of low participation in the political process, or whether it's voter mistrust of politicians. There is, however, another way to think critically about the cacophony of calls for civility. Let us think of the role that incivility plays in accelerating society toward a more equitable outcome with respect to the quest for social justice. The legal scholar Randall Kennedy persuasively argues that moral progress does not just happen, it is made to happen. What Kennedy had in mind were actions that are tainted with coercion, like strikes and boycotts. Aggressive agitations exemplified by the anti-slavery polemics of people like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass both of whom decried slavery as debased and savage. 
we can think of the violent incivility surrounding Abraham Lincoln's marshalling of Union forces against the Confederacy. Think of the charitable but unapologetic words of Lincoln's second inaugural. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman, two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These words were astounding for Lincoln to utter in support of the long-suffering bondsman. In a time of aggrieved northern loss and humiliating southern defeat, in a white America not overly welcoming to millions of emancipated slaves, the truth, however bitter, was what the nation required, not soothing words of civility. Kennedy believes that we over-rely on a conception of civility as manners, and that is the least helpful way of thinking about the relationship between civility and the need for redress of wrongs perpetrated against the marginalized. This mannered conception of civility, cloaked in conforming ways of address and an ideology of politeness, limits us to merely tolerating different points of view. This bare tolerance distracts us from addressing real problems and, in many ways, operates as a silencing mechanism where arguments are dismissed as uncivil regardless of the merits of the disagreement. In these environments, such as that which occurred in Ferguson, Occupy, Chicago, among other venues, the behavior of those offering disagreement becomes the issue, and the injustice that animated the disagreement is rendered inconsequential. The modern callers for civility assume that positive relations with one's opponents should be maintained lest the relationship devolve into a negative, dysfunctional, and less productive engagement. And yet, disagreement lies at the heart of democracy. Indeed, disagreement often holds more truth and legitimacy than an artificial edifice of manners. In his treatise on liberty, John Stuart Mill argued that opinions gain value when it faces criticism. Truth is the political outcome when difference, what Mill called a collision of error, is allowed to strengthen democratic engagement. Disagreement is endemic to politics, but there is still a natural human desire to seek commonality and downplay contentiousness. So in our time now, we should ask ourselves whether individuals like Donald Trump irreparably harm or continually strengthen our democracy. In the process of deciding, we would be wise to consider Mill, Kennedy, and others who recognize that in seeking a driven un unanimity, 
we do not appreciate the crucial role that difference plays in democratic engagement. If the goal in a democracy is to seek a more engaged and informed public so as to service justice and egalitarianism, should we not consider that it is power that benefits when civil discourse is primal? By refusing to critically enrage those with offending points of view, hiding behind a countenance of manners, do we risk allowing privileged members of society to incubate power among themselves? In the end, democracy benefits from a multiplicity of worldviews and emotions where criticism of the status quo and acting on it is endemic to the democratic political process.